0: Well, we are jumping back into the Gospel of John. We last left John on Easter Sunday and took a break this summer to focus on prayer. And so we're jumping back in. If you are new to Cornerstone and started attending this summer, well, this is a great week to join in as we'll be journeying through this over the course of the fall. second half of John is focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And as is with most of the Gospels, most, most of the Gospels, half of the book, Deals with the last six days of their life, of Jesus' life. So we come to John, the Gospel of John. We're looking at John chapter 12, but we're going to start off in John chapter 11. Where we found ourselves in the journey so far is that John has been increasingly revealing who Jesus Christ is. He has shown what it means that in order to know God, you have to know him through Jesus Christ, and that there needs to be a spiritual rebirth. See, Jesus declared that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water, that he is the uh, light of the world, and then in John chapter 11, we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and he declares that I am the resurrection and the life. As we come to this passage here this morning, we are entering into the drama that has ensued after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and entering into the conflict that had developed. Now, as we begin to look at this, something that I want us to focus on is I want us to examine how we respond to Jesus and to consider your own response to Jesus and how you react to him. Because Scripture makes clear that Jesus requires of us total devotion and that indifference or a partial commitment to him is not possible. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that you would teach us your word, that you would change our hearts, that our spirit would draw us to you, Lord, that you would soften us, that we would hear your word, that we would apply it, and that we would live it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Jesus requires total devotion. And if we come to comprehend who Jesus is and what Jesus has done... It will result in one of two things. It'll either lead you to disdain him or it'll lead you to be totally devoted to him. We're going to look at three different characters in this story, beginning in John chapter 11, verses 45. Here's what the text says This is immediately after Jesus has resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He has come out, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Here's what happens next, verse 45. they made plans to put him to death. So as we begin to look at the response of the Jewish leaders here and of Caiaphas, the high priest, let me ask you, are the Jewish leaders, and his Caiaphas, are they concerned for the truth? No. Of course not. And so let's take this directly to us. If Jesus Christ is a threat to your power, if he is a threat to your position, if he is a threat to what you perceive as to be your level of freedom, freedom, if you truly comprehend who he is, you cannot be devoted to him, but you will indeed disdain him. Notice what happens in this passage. They come to Jesus, and after several people see Lazarus come out of the tomb, he's got mummy all over him. He's getting unbound. And here's the response of the crowd. Many of the Jews, therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they see this man come back from the dead, and what is their response? Is that they go tell him to the religious leaders. Now, are the religious leaders concerned about what is true? Here is what they do. They debate, and they're, they're and they debate, and this is their conclusion. If we let him go on like this, if we let Jesus go on like this, well, like what? Healing people, bringing dead people back to life. If we go on letting Jesus help people, if we go let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their concern? It's for their power. And so Caiaphas, who's the high priest at the time, he comes along. And now, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. And what that means is that he did not believe in the possibility of a resurrection under any circumstance, even though he was the high priest. And so, the thought that there was someone, reports of someone being raised from the dead, he's not interested in investigating it. He's not interested in finding out whether or not it is true. It immediately can't be because his beliefs prevent him from considering the truth. Caiaphas had been high priest for 16 years, he was highly educated, he was intelligent, he was cynical, and he was ruthless. As one commentator states, he was cold, calculating, self-sufficient, shrewd, self-satisfied, and an ecclesiastical climber. So Caiaphas responds, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So for Caiaphas and the religious leaders, is the pursuit of truth their concern? No way. Is their concern that sick people are being healed by Jesus? Not at all. Is their concern that, wow, could it possibly be that the presence of God is among us, fulfilling the word of God? What is their concern? It's for the preservation of of power. Now, in your observation as you have lived life and as you have observed political systems and as you have have read history, do people in positions of power ever ignore truth in order to preserve their position of power? Yeah, this has plagued the political system for millennia, right? Not just political system, but businesses and organizations take your pick, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the phrase goes. And so what happens then, if someone who is in a position of power, um, if there's other people come to them and begin to challenge that, those who are not in a position of power say to those who are in a position of power, they say to them, "You're ignoring the truth." And those that are in position of power say to those who are not in the position, who are not in position of power, "No, we're not. We're not the ones ignoring the truth. You're the ones that's ignoring the truth, and you just want power." Now which is it? A whole lot of both, right? It is a whole lot of both. Well, what do you do then if there's evidence and there's truth that keeps getting in your way? What do you do? Well, you destroy it. I mean, that's what people do. So that's what the Pharisees did. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. But they had another problem is that Lazarus was roaming around too. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away, and many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. So I want us to observe here, as we see this interaction here, that the rejection of Jesus has nothing to do with whether or not it is true. It has nothing to do with whether or not he, what he did was true. It has nothing to do with the truth that he represents. And the same thing continues today. Now, I firmly believe that honest answers deserve honest questions. And that if people are investigating the Christian faith, and you might be here today investigating it, that if you are investigating the Christian faith, that you should receive honest answers to the questions that you have. And there are a number of difficult questions that people often have. But one of our challenges as we begin to investigate things is that we live under the illusion of objectivity. We live under the illusion that we handle truth and information on an objective basis. We tend to view ourselves, particularly as Americans, we tend to view ourselves as you know, dragnet. Just, just, just the facts, man. Just the facts. And I'm going to take those facts and I'm going to follow those facts wherever they lead. Right? And I'm an, I'm an objective researcher. Wherever the research takes me, that's, that's where I will go. I will follow the evidence. And you know, we view ourselves a little bit like Tom Cruise and A Few, few Good Men as he is investigating this, the, uh, the crime that had occurred. And he's saying, I just want the truth, I want the truth. And we're, he responds, you want the truth, right? You can't handle the truth. And so we perceive ourselves as we are the ones who are the objective arbitrators of truth. Because they're, in our culture, for us, probably the only thing that is worse or next I mean, probably being called a fraud is worse. But right next to to that is being said that you're not objective. That you're someone who's biased. That you're someone who's prejudiced. Right? And so, you know, you see it in, in sports games. There's a referee. The referee makes a call against your team. Why did he make that call? Because he's biased. And so we view ourselves and we are imagine ourselves to be that we are we are the neutral refs we just call it as it is we just say it like it is we just follow the truth wherever it is but if you are one and you feel that Jesus is a threat to your power that Jesus is a threat to your power ambitions that Jesus is a threat to possibly your political views if you feel that Jesus is a is if you feel that Jesus is a threat to your position, what is true, just like it was for the religious leaders, what is true is irrelevant. What is true is irrelevant if Jesus becomes a threat to your power or to your position. And what will happen is that instead of examining the truth, you will either distort the truth to come up with a caricature of Jesus that fits within your framework and your mind and something that's palatable to you, or you will disdain him, or you will try to destroy him, but you will not be devoted to him. Let's take a look at another response. This comes in John chapter 12. After they trying to kill Lazarus, there's another, there's another interaction. A little bit later, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. You can imagine the scene. There's this, you know, resurrection celebration dinner for Lazarus is back from the dead. We're going to have a giant party. Uh, Other texts tell us that this was at the home of Simon, Simon the leper where this occurred. So they gave a dinner for him there. Mary served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So this would probably have been at least 17 people who were gathered around. They're reclining at the table because for great feasts, what they would do is they would have a table and everyone would lay next to it, leaning on one elbow, and then they'd be eating with the other one. Martha's there, Martha's totally devoted to Jesus, and she's doing her thing, you know, Mary and Martha, Martha's cooking, she's delighted to be serving this great crowd of people, right, that's what the texts tell us. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. This is what happens next, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expen- expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which would be a year's wages, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have, but you do not always have me. Notice G- Judas's response. is that Judas sees this money that in his mind is being wasted. And so similar to Caiaphas, is that if Jesus is a threat to your money, if he threatens your wealth, if he threatens your vision of security, you cannot be devoted to him. In fact, scripture says that you will either love the one or hate the other. You cannot be devoted to both God and money. So what is Judas's response to this extreme lavishness on the part of Mary? Well, he responds with false piety, right? He responds and says, oh, wait a second. Couldn't we have sold this for the poor? Couldn't we care for the poor? right? And the great thing, not great thing, the great thing about false piety is that he gets this double end of it. He can state his point in his critique. He can expose something while appearing godly and holy. I just care about the poor. Who can criticize that, right? But the text goes on to expose that he indeed didn't care about the poor. Rather, he was just virtue signaling and signaling this off, and he was just one who was greedy, but he was greedy in a way that gave the facade of godliness and the facade about caring for the poor, which Judas didn't want to do. He just wanted the money sold so that he could care, manage the cash, which he periodically stole from. What's the indication for us? Is that if you love, if you love money, if you love comfort, if you love your standard of living, and you love being able to buy new cars and new houses and vacations, or maybe you're one who's not a spender, but you love having financial security and putting away this much every year and every year because you know that by this point later on in your life, if you get this rate of return, you're going to have however many millions of dollars that you'll have. And Jesus would say to you, you cannot serve God in money. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you will disdain the other. And the antidote, the antidote to this, after putting your faith in Jesus, the antidote to the stranglehold of money and the antidote to the stranglehold of the love of money and the feel that there's a need for more money, the antidote to it is generosity. It is to give it away. It is to give it away. And then the amazing thing that happens is that as you start to do that, it actually inspires you to be more generous. And for some of you, you have been finding your security in your financial wealth. You've been finding your security in planning things out and what it can give you. And Jesus would warn you, you cannot serve both God and money. And the response would be that you would respond by living a life of generosity. Generosity. When we consider Jesus, Judas and Judas's obvious disdain for Mary's act of devotion, subsequent betrayal of Jesus Christ, Judas is one, a character who, whenever I come across him in Scripture, Judas always disturbs me. And the reason why Jesus disturbs me is that nobody would have guessed that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus. Right? I mean, Judas was one who had changed his life. He was one who had joined in to follow Jesus. He was one who had witnessed many of these miracles. He was one who had went gone out and had gathered the crowds to gather together. He was one who certainly wouldn't be Judas. Is that what the Last Supper, when they're gathered around and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, nobody says, yeah, we know who that's going to be. They all say, who? Like, who among us would actually do this? Who would betray you? Not, not I. Like, who would do this? Nobody would have guessed Judas, And so Judas stands as a warning. On the one hand, it's a warning to realize you really never know another person's heart, no matter how devoted, no matter how involved, no matter the position that they have. But the other warning that Judas always gives me when I come across him, is not only do I not know another person's heart, it's that I barely know my own heart. You know, and for Judas... The way that Scripture presents, portrays him is that Judas didn't enter into Jesus' band of merry men in order to be the mole who would betray him. There was something in Jesus that was attractive to him. And he said, yeah, I'm going to leave my life, I'm going to leave my career, and I'm going to follow him. And while he is following Jesus, the depth of his heart or his indecision or what he truly loves begins to get revealed and exposed in his life. And ultimately he turns to the part of completely and utterly disdaining him. So Judas, to me, always stands as a warning whenever I come across him to say, okay, where are there are parts of my life that I feel in tension with Jesus, where I feel like, you know what, there's a little warning flag that goes off. I know Jesus calls me to do this, but I've got lots of reasons why this doesn't apply to me. I know Scripture calls me to live this certain way, but you know what, that doesn't, that doesn't work for me, so I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take these little things, and whenever these things, Jesus gives me uncomfortable truths, I'm going to redefine them in a way that they're okay with me. I'm going to distort what Jesus says, so it doesn't really apply to me. I just wonder how many times Jesus Judas did that. How many times when Jesus is saying you can't serve God and money and Jesus Judas is saying, "Well, no, 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 I'm not yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, right?" Because you will either love the one and hate the other or you will disdain the one and be devoted be devoted to the other. But if you come to grasp grasp who Jesus Christ truly is and what he has done, it leads you not to disdain him, but it leads you to a place of total devotion. Look what Mary does here. They're having this thank you dinner for Lazarus, you know, celebration of Lazarus' resurrection. It's six days before Passover. Other gospel accounts tell us that they're at the house of Simon the leper. At least 17 people have gathered together. You know, what a fun night. I mean, the dinner conversation at this must have just been a riot. Right, you've got Simon the leper telling his story. He says, You you would never believe it. I was there and like my, my fingers grew back. And like portions of my face grew back that had started to fall off. And Lazarus is there, and he's like, Man, that, that's nothing. I was dead for four days, and all of a sudden I woke up and there's like mummy stuff all around me, and I see this mummy stuff, and people were unwrapping me. Like it was nuts, right? I mean, this must have just been just such a place of of overwhelming joy. And Martha's doing her thing, she's she's cooking up a storm. She's happy about it this time out of devotion to Jesus. She's not mad about it, right? And they're having this celebration. In the midst of this, Mary comes along and says, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so Jesus is reclining at the table, His feet would have been easily accessible. Other gospel accounts tell us that she also anointed his head and possibly his whole body. The text says that a pound of expensive ointment is actually a liter, was the estimate, about a half liter, which is an enormous amount of fragrance. It says it was from pure nard, pure, it was undiluted nard, which is a perfume from northern India. And she takes it and she dumps it on Jesus. Now, I thought about this, and saying, and Judas tells us that's about 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. I'm like, is it, I mean, really? A year's wages? I mean, is that really reasonable? Is that, did people really, did someone really keep a year's wages worth of perfume sitting in their house? Did they do that? So I did a little research, and I was like, okay, what are, what's something that's pure? So I began researching prices on essential oils. And, Found that there's an essential oil called champaca, which sells, currently selling for $76 a milliliter. Which is $2,256 an ounce. And so if you had the amount that she had here, which is about 17 ounces, that comes out to about $38,000 of perfume that she has. And then I looked up what are some of the most expensive perfumes that you have today. And there's one by Clive Christian, number one, which sells for $12,721 per ounce, which comes out to this volume of $216,000 for a bottle of this stuff. So, here too, in our own world today, we have bottles of perfume that are worth. Over a year's wages, whether anywhere between thirty-eight and $216,000, right? A year's wages. An extraordinary gift, extraordinarily lavish. For Mary, this was probably her life savings. This was probably her retirement. And Mary, in this act of devotion, in this act of complete and utter humility, she pours this bottle out on Jesus' feet. Now, you consider, just ponder what this room must have smelled like. How much essential oil is needed to fill a room? Drops, right? How much, how many puffs of perfume is needed to fill a room? One of you's wearing it today. No, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, a couple a couple puffs, right? How much axe body spray is needed in the gym locker room? Okay, gallons, gallons, fair enough. Fair enough. But, but how, much, how much villanelle extract is needed in a, res, in a recipe? Drops, right? I mean, drops. And here she is, Mary pours out the bottle, the fragrance fills, fills the room. She's doing what would have been a servant's work. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair in this act of humility. Jewish women rarely unbound their hair certainly not in public. And so in this intense act of personal and total devotion, you know, and who knows what that perfume would have done to her hair. And then as she gets up and walks around, the wafting of of this smell throughout the room, filling everyone, reminding them of this complete lavish display. Is what she did, was it wasteful? Was it a waste? Judas says, yes. That was a waste. There is was far better usages of it. But Jesus defends her, and he says to her, leave her alone. This is good. This is right. This is appropriate. He accepts her lavish worship, her lavish total and utter devotion, this lavish sacrifice. Now, in terms of the comment about caring for the poor, Jesus is not diminishing caring for the poor. You can see this throughout his ministry. But what he is emphasizing that Jesus is saying is, total devotion to me is more important than your servant, than your service. Total devotion. You see, you cannot be partially devoted to Jesus. It's all or nothing. You you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve yourself and God. You cannot serve a political aim and purpose and serve Jesus. You cannot have two masters. And this isn't the only time that Jesus says things like this. There are other passages where Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and says, like, do I really want to do this? It says, no one who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus also says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you cannot be partially devoted to Jesus. It is all or nothing. So let me ask you, is your commitment to Jesus one of total devotion? Is it one of total devotion that you say, Jesus, you have rights to everything in my life? I guess for most of us, the answer to that question is no. For some of us here, the reason why that answer is to no is because you're not committed to Jesus in the first place. That you've kind of been in a standoff with Jesus. That you like certain things about him, but you're not sure if you want to commit to him, because committing to him means certain things that you don't want to give up in your life. That committing to Jesus adds a certain level of of a threat to your power or your position or things that you have. And you don't want to do that, and so you're not sure. So you feel like you and Jesus are in in a standoff. But you kind of like it. Well, fall sports have kicked off, and, you know, uh, soccer season's kicked off. St. Mary's Youth Soccer kicked off this weekend, Right? And so what happens if you've got a striker who's coming down the field, they've got ball control, they're on a fast break, the striker's taking the ball down the field, the defender engages the striker, right? The striker's coming down, the defender sees them, comes up and engages them, and at that minute, and you know, in milliseconds, right? At that minute, there is this mind game that occurs between the offense and the defense, between the striker and the defender. And there is this mind game, and each person... The offender, the offense, and the defense, each one is trying to get the other one to do something first. And what is it? They are trying to get the other player to commit. Because as soon as they commit, their vulnerability is exposed. And for many people, what happens is that when it comes to Jesus, you feel like you're in the standoff with Jesus. And you don't want to commit because to commit makes yourself vulnerable. To commit means you're going to put your full weight on something. And you're like, I'm not really sure if this one's going to really be able to hold me up. Or if you're not a soccer person, you're more a football person. You know, football season's kicking off. You know, college, college games started yesterday, right? What happens, offense getting ready to line up. The quarterback calls the snap. They're getting ready to run a play-action pass. And at the minute that he calls the snap... Everybody moves, right? The wide receivers run out, the cornerbacks and the secondaries run out to go deep in the field and to guard against the pass. The offensive linemen, the defensive linemen are engaged with one another. They begin, instantly begin their wrestling match. Everybody moves except for two people, two groups of people. One, the quarterback who sets and the linebackers. Because the linebackers are in between the secondary who are guarding the pass and the linemen who are guarding the run. And at that given moment, both the quarterback and the linebackers are trying to see what is he going to commit to? How is he going to commit? And if the quarterback can get the linebackers to commit to the run, if he's running play action, then he's going to go for the pass because their vulnerability is exposed. And if the linebackers decide that they're going to back up for the pass, well, then he's going to switch and go to the run. But the goal is to get the other player, the other position, to commit first because their vulnerability is exposed. And so you come before Jesus and you feel like you're in this standoff with Jesus of, of how how is this going to work out? How is, this, how is this going to go? And Jesus comes to you. And you're like, well, I'm not sure if I'm ready to commit. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm I want to do this because right now I, I love these things and I love you. I, I hold on to my money and my position and my power, and I want to preserve and defend that. And what's true, I'm sort of interested in what's true, but really I'm interested in my money and my position and power, so I'm going to hold on to that. But I also like Jesus, so I'm going to hold on to this. I don't quite want to commit, so I'm going to freeze here. And Jesus comes to you and he says, I'm the one that committed to you long before you even thought of me. I'm the one who made the first move. I'm the one who pursued after you before you had any interest. I'm the one who took the disdain of the world. I am the one who took the hatred of those who are interested in preserving their position, who are interested in preserving their power, who are interested in preserving their wealth. I took it all. I took the punishment that you deserve. And scripture reveals to us that when Jesus was in the garden, he had the choice of whether or not he was going to commit he didn't turn away, but he committed, even though that he knew that doing so would send him to the cross. And so instead of Jesus standing there looking at you, saying, What are you going to do? He's saying, Listen, I have already gone the distance for you, I have already laid myself out for you. But if you refuse to commit, if you refuse to give Jesus total devotion, you cannot be independent in between, and it will end up in disdain. But for others of us, what happens instead is this: we may say well, that we're committed to Jesus, but the reason why we're not—we don't have total devotion to Him—or why your devotion isn't total—is because you don't realize what you have, and so it's hard to comprehend that what Mary did wasn't wasteful. It's hard to comprehend that. But for Mary, it wasn't wasteful because she knew what she had in having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. She's keeping it for the day of my burial. Mary showed total devotion to Jesus because she knew who she was devoted to. And she knew that the one that she was devoted to was the one who was completely and totally devoted to her and had given his life for her and would give his life for her. You know, the Puritans were an odd bunch. But one of the things that the Puritans did is that they would walk around and in telling people about Jesus, they would go up to people and they would ask the question, do you have the pearl?" And it was as weird of a question back then as it is today. But they'd say, well, do you have the pearl? And they'd say, well, what's the pearl? They say, well, do you have the pearl of great price? They're like, well, what is the pearl of great price? And they say, well, the pearl of great price is the pearl that is worth more than anything else in this world. Do you have it? And it's available to you. And they'd say, well, how can I get this pearl? And what they're doing is they're using the story that Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like one who discovers a pearl in a field, a pearl of great price. Then after discovering it, he buries it back down and he goes out and he sells all that he has so that he could go buy this field. And he gives all that he has in order to buy this field. Why? Because he knows that if he possesses this field, he will possess that which is of inestimable worth. So let's say you move into a new property here in St. Mary's County and you're running a property and uh, the well on your property is not working so well and so the well diggers come out they set up the time to come out with you and they do to drive a new well and instead of hitting water, they hit oil and they discover an oil field. Would you then go out and and sell everything that you had so that you could immediately buy this piece of land? Absolutely. Would you do everything in your power to guard it, to defend it, to, to legally secure this piece of land? Absolutely. Why? Because total diversion to it makes sense because what you would possess is of inestimable worth. And so for Mary, her giving this lavish gift to Jesus, this lavish act of display, makes sense because she understood that Jesus was of infinite worth. And because he is of infinite worth and of infinite value, she could be totally devoted to him. What does that mean? It means that Jesus comes to you not in the standoff, but the one who has already committed himself and as the one who has already made the first move. And Jesus comes to us and he requires total devotion because he is the only one who is completely and totally devoted to you. And Jesus comes to us and he took the disdain and the hatred of the world and he, so that you would be set free from its power. And he was the one who in his commitment became completely vulnerable to the point of death on the cross so that you would know and experience his total security and his total devotion. What this means is that Jesus is worth everything. And if he is worth everything, that may we devote ourselves totally to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I praise you that when you were faced with the choice of whether or not you would commit, whether or not you would be totally devoted to God's will and totally devoted to us, when you had the choice to say no, you endured the cross so that we could be set free, so that we could know and experience your total devotion, so that we could live life set free from trying to cling to power and position and wealth and prestige, trying to cling to these things as if they would give us security, but rather you are the one who gives us security through your death and resurrection from the grave into eternity. So, Father, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would know, Lord, that we would experience anew and afresh, that you are the one who has made the first move, that you are the one who committed yourself to us, that you are the one who pursued after us. And, Lord, in comprehending who you are and what you have done, May there be none here today who disdain you. But Lord, may we turn in total devotion to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.